0: Part of our series about the research that happens in Cambridge, just 100 yards from where we shop, we talk to a university professor who uses computers to study what happens in the atmosphere. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. Anyway, I was intrigued to read about a Cambridge University group who study what happens in the atmosphere. They're based at the chemistry department in Lensfield Road, and that's where I met Professor John Pyle. He told us about what they do there. Let's have a listen. We'll come back in 15 minutes. So I'm here in the Department of Chemistry, Cambridge University, Professor John Pyle. John, what happens here?
1: I've got a research group that is mainly doing numerical modelling of the atmosphere. And what we're trying to do in particular is to model how chemical processes influence the structure of the atmosphere. So we take fundamental physical chemistry that could be measured in the laboratory, information on how species react with each other, we write computer programmes, and then we say, well, can we apply those to problems like the depletion of the ozone layer, how changing emissions into the atmosphere might affect air quality, the air that you breathe, the air at the surface, how those chemical processes and emissions into the atmosphere might impact climate on longer timescales. Broadly speaking, that's what we're trying to do. We're a bunch of people with physical science backgrounds. We've got chemists, of course, but also physicists, mathematicians, people whose primary expertise is in meteorology. We're bringing all those t- together into a team to try to address these questions about how composition changes, how composition might change in the future, and what the impacts of that are for us, either in terms of the air that we breathe, or in terms of how it might affect climate.
0: The thing that drove me here was this story about changes of land use uh, affecting the atmosphere in quite an interesting way. What what was going
1: on there. Well, we have a collaboration with scientists in Malaysia which goes back about half a dozen years now and it's been been very interesting. One of the things that we noticed and it's pretty obvious if you go to Malaysia is that the the palm oil industry is a very big industry over there. It's economically extremely important to them. And what's happening is that some of the rainforest is been is being cleared and logged and is being replaced by uh, palm oil plantations. Now, forests are very interesting and of course they're very important for the planet as I guess a lot of people know. One of the things that vegetation does is it, it, it can breathe out gases into the atmosphere. Okay. The natural rainforest is a moderate emitter of a gas called isoprene. It's fairly reactive and it plays a role in ozone chemistry. And ozone is important for a, a number of reasons. Not least because high levels of ozone at the surface are not very good for you. And they can damage not only you, I mean, you know, they've been associated with lung damage, particularly to, to people who are already disposed to, to respiratory problems. So, high at the surface isn't good. It's also not good for vegetation. Oh. Uh, and one of the questions is what happens when you go from a, a landscape in which you've got natural forests to a landscape in which you've got palm oil plantations, where you, you, you replace the, this diversity by a kind of monoculture? It's happened a lot in, in the tropics. The palm oil tree is, is, a, is actually a very high isoprene emitter, and that can have an impact on, on ozone that we've, we've been exploring. I think probably the, the, the example that people might understand rather better is we've also done sort of completely hypothetical calculations in, in which we've said what would happen if, say, you, you, you went to Amazonia and you remove the rainforest and you replace it with wheat, you know, yeah. let, let's put something in there that people can eat. So here's a benefit doing land use change to feed a, gr- a growing population. OK, so this particular species of, of vegetation is a rather low isoprene emitter. And the consequences of that that we found in our calculations is that under those circumstances where you've replaced the forest, moderate emitter by wheat and low emitter, is that ozone levels go up. And of course, I've said ozone can actually damage crops. So what you've done to try to feed an increasing population uh, leads, though, to air quality changes, which have a negative feedback on the food that you're trying to produce. So we're exploring these kind of interactions in the calculations that we do. And there are there are of uncertainties. There are things that we don't know. But they're suggestive that, well, actually, maybe you're better doing... This policy of land use change rather than that policy of land use change. And it can certainly, what we're doing, can feed into that home question about land use change, agriculture, biofuel and so on.
0: Now the scale that you're talking about here is bigger than my garden, is bigger than the field out there, it's big. Absolutely. You know,
1: we need to be very cautious about how we interpret the results of some of these numerical model calculations. We're running global numerical models and we represent the locations in those models by, uh, by grid boxes. So, so we've discretized the whole atmosphere, if you like. And, and we have you know a box which might be a couple of degrees in latitude and a couple of degrees in longitude wide. So these are pretty big boxes, much bigger than your garden. And we're assuming that what happens in that box happens uniformly across the box. You know, one, one of the challenges of numerical modeling is to try to run at higher and higher spatial resolutions all the time. But when we run those calculations it's to say let's have due caution about the results but those those calculations suggest that under these circumstances, result a happens or result b happens, and then we find ways of of exploring those either by making sure that we've got measurements that that can confirm that the processes that we've put into our models still operate on this large scale it 's a real challenge again in, in modeling. I, I said at the beginning that we use fundamental data that's collected in the laboratory so you collect data on reaction rates in the laboratory where you know molecule a is reacting with molecule b and you can measure that if you're clever enough you can measure those reactions in very small volumes and we're then saying well let's apply that to the atmospheric chemistry that's going on in our numerical model at a scale of tens of kilometers by tens of kilometers by a kilometer so deep but what we do do a large part of what we do is to make measurements or we work with people who make measurements in the atmosphere where they you know they can measure the change of, of processes and we can we can evaluate the chemistry that we've put into our models at coarse resolution and by and large what we see is that the models are actually doing a pretty good description of processes that we can go out and measure If you're making lots of
0: ozone, that's a good thing, really, because we've got a hole in the ozone layer. So we're going to make some more and that's going to be good for
1: us, is it not? Unfortunately, it depends where it is. An analogy that I often use is that of insulation. Mm -hmm. So ozone filters out radiation that's coming through from the sun. So we want to have that filter. But we don't want it at the surface because high amounts of ozone at the surface, we would breathe in and they're bad for our lungs, they're bad for plants and so on. So you want the ozone to be kind of high up Mm -hmm. in exactly the same way Mm -hmm. with insulation. You stick insulation in your loft, this fibrous insulation that you can buy, you wouldn't want to wrap yourself in your armchair with that stuff because it would be extremely bad for you. It's exactly the same with ozone. It's, It's the same problem. We need a lot of ozone high up in the ozone layer, we don't want it low down and unfortunately we've managed you know over the last 50 years or so to change ozone in both those locations in the stratosphere we've depleted ozone by putting cfc's and other gases into the atmosphere and at the surface we've increased ozone by driving motor cars around and you know emitting the oxides of nitrogen and organic species into the atmosphere it's an interesting problem ozone low down Shouldn't be too high. Ozone lowdown could be bad for you. The ozone high up, we want it to be there. You know, a good, healthy ozone layer is important.
0: Have we finished with the ozone layer problem? Has it gone away, or can I stop worrying about it now?
1: We've largely finished with the problem as a political problem, in that the gases that destroy ozone, the the CFCs, which we used to use in refrigeration and foam blowing, aerosol spray cans, and so on, except for some very, very minor. Uh, medical uses th- those gases are controlled some of their replacement gases which also destroyed ozone are also controlled hmm. however they have a very long lifetime in the atmosphere that's why they were used they were, they were fantastic they were you know you could spray them under your arm and it didn't damage your arm you know these gases were pretty benign the problem was that once they get into the upper atmosphere they could be broken down to form much smaller molecules which could destroy ozone once you switch off the emissions, you say, let's not emit any more of these gases. The time it takes to remove that, th- those gases from the atmosphere, because they've got to get very high up, it- it's on the order of many decades. So the ozone hole is going to be a problem with us for certainly most of this century. So it's still, it's still happening. But the, the gases that are responsible for the ozone depletion have been regulated. We're starting to see that their concentrations are decreasing in the atmosphere but there will remain an ozone hole certainly until at least the middle of this century almost certainly it's ozone is also important so you, you might say well do I really bother about ozone in Antarctica yeah um, you know very few people live there there's not there's no vegetation you know there's not a huge amount of, of, of life down there but ozones a climate gas it's a it's a really I think it's a really important example we've seen that associated with the change in ozone in the stratosphere as the ozone hole built up from the 1970s onwards, there's actually been a change in surface climate that we can relate to the ozone. So again, the atmosphere is a very highly coupled system. What goes on in the stratosphere, the high part of the atmosphere, can impact the surface and so on. So we're starting to learn, there's a lot more to be learned, but we're starting to learn interesting things about these chemistry climate interactions, because of what's happened in Antarctica and um, the discovery of the ozone hole by Joe Farman and Joe, normally comes in and sits downstairs. You Whoa. know, so he comes into this building. What what he discovered, I think, was was incredibly important to he and his colleagues at the British Antarctic Survey, because it pointed out that we could change the atmosphere on relatively short timescales. These CFCs, really, their their their, their use grew from about the 1960s onwards... so you know we, we changed the natural balance of part of the atmospheric system you know in two or three decades it, it, really crucial and i think it, it's you know what can be done politically is also a signal that you can do stuff to stop that from happening well going back to the i mean the work that we're, we're doing in in southeast asia we're collaborating with malaysians trying to understand how gases get out of the ocean and into the atmosphere the CFCs, as I said, have been replaced, but there is a class of of these chlorine and bromine containing gases, short-lived, relatively short-lived gases, that come out of the ocean and and can be moved around in the atmosphere. And their significance is it's certainly not as great, I think, on for the ozone layer as the CFCs. But there's some really interesting science, which again takes us just beyond this. isn't just atmospheric chemistry, but it's how these atmospheric chemistry processes interact with the ocean, with ocean biology, and so on. I think I think there's really great science to be done look at that, that interface, you know, what, what we sometimes call Earth system science. I think it's, I think it's really really great stuff, and we're making measurements out there, and we're trying to interpret them, trying to understand how how the measurements of the concentration of these gases that we're measuring on the island of Borneo how they relate to emissions that are coming out of the ocean. Well, let let me again give you an example. So in the summer of 2003 was a very hot summer and we had record temperatures uh, in August of that year in the southern part of the UK but also in in northern France. Very, very hot indeed. At the same time, air quality was actually rather bad. So the levels of ozone were significantly higher than the World Health Organisation says is good for you. For a short period only. nevertheless, People who were prone to respiratory problems, old people, very young people. And there was a risk associated with that, with the heat, obviously. But there was also a risk associated with the degradation in air quality. In France, they reckoned that there was something like, I think, about 20,000 deaths which were brought forward. So these were people who were already at risk, but, but this incident was the incident that, that led to their death. So this is really important stuff. And it's not just about atmospheric chemistry but it's, it's about this interaction between the chemistry and the weather if we get more of these kind of situations of the kind that we had in 2003 and the climate models say the 2003 incident was it was a very rare event maybe one in hundreds of year event the climate models say that in the third or maybe fourth quarter of this this coming century that kind of summer will be fairly normal so we're going to have summers like two thousand and three, routinely by the end of the century, and there will, we believe, be as- be associated with them these air quality problems. So that's why you're absolutely right. We, we're not weather people. Some of my group have got expertise in in meteorology, but we are working at this interface. It's really interdisciplinary science that we're doing, the interface between chemistry and, and meteorology, the land surface that I've talked about, you know, which involves people who are biological experts all of those people can contribute to this problem how
0: did you get into this you did chemistry at school and then what
1: happened well i did chemistry at school and i loved chemistry at school i was inspired by a chemistry teacher but actually i read physics so i'm a physicist my first degree was in physics and i joined a group in oxford who were who were atmospheric physicists but to explain the atmosphere as i've said because you know ozone Ozone's an important radiative gas in the atmosphere. It heats the atmosphere up in regions. So if you want to understand how the atmosphere works, you need to know about gases like ozone. And I got interested in the chemistry through that route. Some of my group have got classical chemistry trainings. They're real experts in the mechanisms of chemistry that are going on. But other people know more about you know, how to deal with these things mathematically, you know, how, how we deal with the interface between the chemistry and the meteorology, for example. So there's a range of expertise and I think, like all research, you need to be motivated, You need to, and to be motivated, you've got to be interested. You've got to have an inquiry in mind and say, wow, this is a rather interesting problem. It's a, you know, In this case, we think it's a rather important problem. But the key thing about all of these things is that, you know, you've got to be motivated by the science. You've got to say, I want to get up in the morning and I want to find out more about this. That's what it's about.
0: Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you, John. Right. We're back in the studio. Did you like that interview, Chris? I did. Very neat. And I'm sure listeners would join me to say thanks to Professor John Pyle from the Chemistry Department at Cambridge University. You know, I was really tempted to ask John if his unit did blue sky research. <laughs> glad you did it. And I'm glad I nearly didn't too. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website Dub dub dub. Cambridge105.fm You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store You can get in touch with us on the email science at Cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105 science Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Creese. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105